The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading this morning comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's Word. This week, millions of people were witnesses to something. Witnesses to a man falling down dead. The ratings were the highest they had ever been for Monday Night Football. As DeMar Hamlin, a safety for the Buffalo Bills, finished a tackle after being helmeted in the chest. And he stood to celebrate the play, and then in an instant, just dropped dead to the ground. His heart stopped, and his body lay motionless. The players, they formed a wall around Damar as the medical staff administered feverishly CPR. And players were weeping. Fans were stunned. And broadcasters were speechless. And the game curtain, after about five and a half minutes of play, fell upon the field. And everyone left. To witness that, to witness a person's passing from life to death, is something that probably most of us will experience at some point in our life. Whether it be shockingly sudden or painfully slow. Standing by as you witness someone die reminds us all of the fallen state of humanity and the curtain-falling consequence of sin, which is death. I saw the gravity and the finality of death on the faces of those players that night, on the faces of the fans, on the faces of my boys. Most of the world friends, lives as if the curtain falls, never to rise again. 
But the curtain does rise again. Death is not the end of the story. Death, it's only the end of Act 1. How do we know this to be true? How can we know with complete certainty that this is the case? That death is not the end? We have the book of Acts. We're beginning our series in the book of Acts. And I might alternatively title Acts, Act 2. Acts was written by the gospel writer and the physician named Luke. And if you know any medical people or scientists, you know they are sticklers for detail and accuracy. And Luke is one of those. Luke wrote his first act, the gospel of Luke, to a man named Theophilus, whose name means dear to God or God lover, verse 1 mentions. Theophilus is probably a Gentile, someone who is not of Jewish descent. Theophilus is probably a Roman, a perceived enemy of the Jewish people. Theophilus is of some clout, as he's described by Luke as most excellent. Some believe that Luke, as doctors at that time, were more servants and slaves than anything, that maybe he was even a servant or slave to Theophilus. And this Theophilus is either exploring the claims of Jesus or he's already come to a faith in Christ. And so Luke's purpose in writing Act 1, the Gospel of Luke, is that Theophilus might have certainty concerning what he's been taught about Jesus. Luke gives him all of this live-body detail to Jesus' words and Jesus' actions. And he says to Theophilus, what Jesus said, Jesus did. Jesus' words were this in Luke, The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And Luke also then gives him actions. The Son of Man gave his life on a cross to forgive sinners' sins. And the Son of Man was raised to a new life, resurrected, so that those dead in that sin could live again. Know this for certain, Theophilus. That's what's happened with Jesus. But Luke knows the danger of legend. This was written about 60 A.D., one generation after Jesus. And we could easily, Theophilus could easily hear a detailed story about this Jesus, this Son of Man, a generation after his death, an alleged resurrection, and he could chalk it up to this being just like a cult or a caricature or a story or a Marvel movie, which had this front-end hype but it ends up just being shelved or stored in the vaults of things that are just come and gone. So what does Luke do? He writes Act 2. What would prove this legend, this Jesus, to be true, legitimate, lasting, alive? How would you prove one God-man's life is a kingdom-come movement that's real? It's this. By demonstrating what Jesus said and did keeps on being said and done. What Jesus said and did keeps being said and done. Oh, most excellent church, we hold in our hands Act 2, the book of Acts, the growth of the kingdom of God through His body called the church. The seed that Christ planted continues to grow in the church. From one specific place, Jerusalem, to the end of the earth, from one specific point in time to all times and to every generation. 
Why do we need the book of Acts, all saints? Why do we need this book of history and facts? Because if we're honest, many of us are living like the dead man on the field of faith. We have a lack of vitality in our faith. We have a lack of excitement in our faith. We have a lack of life-changing power in our everyday lives. We're stagnant, we're stuck, we're in the mundane and the monotony of life, forgetting that the book of Acts, that curtain is still up, and guess what? Y'all are on the stage now. We might even believe the lie that the power capacity of the Holy Spirit that you see in the book of Acts is now just down to a thin red bar on the battery indicator. There's not much juice left in the Holy Spirit, it would appear nowadays. Not much life change seems to be happening either in us or around us. And we forget that the same power that raised a dead man back to life still lives within us. We might also believe that this world-changing mission that you see in Acts is for missionaries. Not for moms, not for mechanics, not for medics, not for ministers. Forgetting that it was Mary who gave birth to a Savior. It was a runt shepherd David who was put on a throne. It was a physician Luke who through the Holy Spirit was called to write these words. We need the book of Acts, all saints, for God to break us out of our boxes and our limitations that we have put around the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and also to break the boxes and limitations we've put around us, those called to be his witnesses. We need the book of Acts to rekindle our belief that his Holy Spirit is just as much at work today as he was 2,000 years prior. We need the book of Acts to encourage us that the curtain has not closed with Jesus' death, but continues today in his resurrected and reigning power through his people, the church. Theophilus and church, Jesus is the king. And we must show and tell the world his kingdom is here. How do we do that? How does this opening, these first 11 verses of Acts, equip us to show and tell the world that his kingdom is here? First, we must believe that there is past proof of a risen king. And then secondly, we must believe there is present power of the reigning king. Past proof of the risen king, present power of the reigning king. First, we must believe there's past proof of a risen king. Look with me at verses 1 to 5. And where in these verses do you find proof of a risen king? Luke wants Theophilus to understand that while Luke himself may have never seen Jesus out of the grave, he is trusting the eyewitnesses of those he has interviewed. In verses 1 to 2, He puts a bookend on the physical, earthly ministry of Jesus. He says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the point at which he was taken up. That's the Gospel of Luke. Note that he doesn't say what Jesus did and it's done. No. It's what Jesus began to do, verse 1 says. Began to do and teach. 
And it's now what the apostles, the pioneers of the church, are continuing to do, which is to demonstrate his resurrection in what they teach and what they do. There's proof of a resurrection in the profession of the original capital A apostles. What does the word apostle mean? We might hear that word often, but what does it mean literally? An apostle means an ambassador or a messenger. And in many ways, Christians, even today, are apostolic, right? In our witness, in our testimony about what Jesus has done in our lives. But the original apostles are unique in that they have been God's appointed ambassadors whose eyes have literally seen, whose ears have literally heard, whose hands have literally touched a man who was once cold to the touch. A man who had stopped breathing for three days. A man who was stiff as a board. Verse 3 says Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering on the cross. By many proofs. Not just in a quick and fleeting dream like I had a vision. But no, how long was he among them? Forty days. They needed proof and Jesus gave them undeniable evidence of his being resurrected alive. A once dead and now forever alive man was teaching them about this kingdom of God which never ends. He's commanding them, verse 2 says, to love the world as they've been loved by telling the whole world what Christ has done while having breakfast, lunch, and dinner with them. People are going to question the apostles. People are going to think the apostles crazy. People are even going to condemn all but one of the apostles to death. But these apostles were willing to put not only their reputation, but their very lives on the line because of this undeniable proof that was right before them, a risen king. A few years ago, my uncle Richard died. And some of you also may have uncles like my uncle Richard. He was the life of the party. He was loud. He was gregarious. He would make most who were with him just smile and laugh because of his contagious laugh and just his personality. So much fun to have him at our birthday parties. And at his funeral, I did something I had not done before at other relatives' funerals. I don't know why. Maybe so I could have a sermon illustration. As they were getting ready to close the casket for the final time, I stood tearful in front of my Uncle Richard's coffin. And I reached out my hand and touched his arm. And it sent a shiver up and down my spine because his arm was so lifelessly cold. It was like I touched ice. And it was so rock hard, like I could knock on it and hear it knock back at me. The warm presence of my gregarious uncle was gone. And there was no question that life no longer remained in that man's body. Were Uncle Richard to show up today and hold out his arms for a hug and spend the next month staying at our house, I would bet my life that what I was seeing wasn't imagined, but completely true. Friends, we are gathered here in this place for worship today, 2,000 years later after the book of Acts, because we have placed our trust in the testimony of not one man, but 12 men 
who have seen and who have put their life on the line so we would trust their eyewitness that Jesus is no longer dead but is forever alive. And Jesus promised them while he was in their earshot in verses 4 to 5 that this was only the beginning. The same baptism that Jesus had of the Spirit descending on him like a dove would descend on each one of them to give them the ability to preach the truth, to pen the scriptures, and to give proof of the gospel. These men, these 12 men who were so afraid of being caught as one of Jesus' disciples would now be bold to be the ones who taught Jesus who taught about Jesus, who testified about Jesus at the expense of their own lives. If resurrection was true, Jesus was teaching them, then apostles, resurrection is also for you. The Holy Spirit, known as the breath of God, he promises, would breathe upon them Christ's resurrection so that death was no longer an enemy of any of theirs or us. This proof that all of this was true. We believe there is past proof of a risen king. We must also believe there's past power of a reigning king. Verses 6 to 11. Jesus is gathering the disciples for one final meeting at the Mount of Olives. And that's the very place where Jesus agonized, praying, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. It's the same place where he ascended to his Father's right hand in glory. And as Jesus promised the Spirit, the disciples ask a big question. They know something big's about to happen, and so they ask him, is this it? Is this the time that the nation of Israel will be liberated, where the kingdom of Israel will be fully restored and righted again? You see, many believed that when there was talk of God's Spirit reviving things, at that time, it meant that their t-shirts that said, make Israel great again, <laughs> were about to come true. And so they were very excited. This is going to happen now. Israel's going to become great again. But Jesus, in a moment, was to show them that the kingdom they were and that we are longing for was not at all of this world as he would ascend into heaven. But their mission, their marching orders in remaining on earth would come when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Just wait. It was a delay of what they wanted. They wanted kingdom here and now. And what they saw was king going and yet kingdom coming. We don't like in-between times, do we? If I were watching Jesus ascend, a better friend, a better teacher a better leader, a better brother than I could ever ask for and imagine. If I watched him leave me, I would be staring at the sky, just waiting for him to come back, just as much as the disciples were in verses 9 and 10. How empty it might feel to lose someone like that. But Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit here and within the gospel says that something better is coming in place of Jesus' physical presence. What was coming is the presence of His Spirit within each one of us. The power of Christ now would be able to be in so many places at one time. How? Through His Spirit, which indwells in us. 
the ascending king who had victory over sin in the grave would send his own spirit as a deposit, Scripture says, guaranteeing a kingdom that was to come. And we would become princes and princesses, priests of God and representatives of that kingdom because the king now dwells within us. Well, Jesus' body may have left the building. Jesus' spirit, the power he had to give sight to blind men, to heal lepers, to go to the cross, to rise from the dead, would soon take residence in the hearts of every single one who followed him. The presence of Jesus no longer would come upon a person with power, upon a person with power. It would live within a person in power. And how do we see that today? We see that in lives being transformed by the Holy Spirit. I was having a conversation with a friend recently, and they were telling me just stories about uh, a loved one, a parent, who had treated them so awfully throughout their childhood, who had done things to them that were just unimaginable and horrible. And as they're talking to me about their parent, and I ask them, and they're they're working out, just trying to figure out how to continue to engage with this parent who's still in their life, as they were talking about it, I asked, "How, how how do you feel about this parent? And they said, I just feel so sad for them. So sad for how they're living. And we sat there, both with tears in our eyes, and marveled for a moment. And I said, that's the spirit in you. The world would say, that parent, write them off. They're done. They're out of your life forever. Never want to see them or talk about them again. But the fact that I'm seeing compassion in your eyes for this person is evidence of the Spirit working in you. That's the kind of life transformation that we see all of the time. The Spirit still at work in our world today. And as we close, verse 8 to Acts chapter 1 becomes the centerpiece and our table of contents to the entire book we're about to open. It says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Witnesses. The Greek word is martis, where we get our word martyr. Someone who recalls something and then can tell about it. That's what a witness is. And the Holy Spirit equipped these capital A apostles with firsthand witness. And then he equips us, apostles of the apostles, to have the power, the boldness to declare in our hometown, in our state, in our nation, and in our world of what the Son of Man has done for mankind. Until that day when the Christ that the original apostles saw leaving the world will call everyone out of their graves to see him coming back into the world the same way he left to judge the living and the dead. 
I want to ask the question, how does this past proof of a risen king and this present power of a reigning king then apply to our lives as witnesses, as apostles, as sent ones today? This whole spring, we have opportunity to give application to that question. But one of the things I want to help us with as we open Acts is we must begin by paying attention to two dangers that can happen when you study the book of Acts. Tim Keller, in his study on the book of Acts, says this. It talks about the two dangers. The first danger is this. We must not forget that there is some distance between the original apostles and what they did and us. We need to remember that. There's a difference between what you see with the 12 apostles and us. But on the other hand, we must not put too much distance between ourselves and them. He says this, many in the charismatic movement have read Acts as if the apostles' ministry was not unique, and as a result, they assume that we must copy everything they did exactly. That's very dangerous. But in reaction to this, on the other side of the pendulum swing, there are many people who distrust the charismatic movement and have overreacted to their emphasis on experience and power. They don't want to believe that the power of the Spirit or that the limit-breaking effectiveness of witness is still available to us. We can't make that danger either. What's the solution to this? We must be witnesses who worship God in spirit and in truth. The Holy Spirit's mission is to make much of the Father through the work of the Son. That's what the Spirit is wanting us to testify to. And so if someone is claiming a gift of the Spirit, a charismatic gift of the Spirit, which does not lead to making much of the Father and of the Son, then something is wrong. But if someone is claiming a truth that doesn't demonstrate any power of transforming a human life with the Spirit and its fruits, then something else is very wrong. We worship, we witness in spirit and in truth. You cannot have one without the other. As we walk through the book of Acts, remember that tension. Remember that blending. Remember that balance between spirit and truth. Friends, as we close, we must have confidence in the apostolic authority. The proof of God's word given to us by these first-hand witnesses. What is written on these pages was seen with human eyes. May that grant us boldness to declare the gospel of Jesus without shame and with great risk, knowing it could cost our lives as well. We have the resurrection power of Jesus, which raises the curtain to an eternal act three. Let's be bold in talking about it. And as we trust this past proof given to us, let us trust there is a present power of the Holy Spirit we have living within us to proclaim to the end of the earth the mystery of our faith. I want to give you one very simple application. When I grew up in the Catholic Church and in its liturgy, some of the things I love are the simple truths that were embedded into my head. And we sang it every week. Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Right? Do you remember this? Simple. But I would encourage you to proclaim today, to proclaim this week, the simple mystery of your faith. Act 1. Christ has died, 
Act two, Christ is risen. Act three, Christ will come again. I don't know what to say to people. Just say that. Find an opportunity to declare the simple mystery of your faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming back. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Acts. As I told several people these past few weeks, 2023 is curious to me. I'm curious what you're going to do. And I'm excited what you're going to do. I'm excited that, Father, you are show, going to show us through the book of Acts that you are limitless in power. Help us, Father, to see that power and to believe that that power is our power. To be able to walk and to witness with the bold, resurrected power of Jesus. Help us this week even to proclaim the mystery of our faith that has been seen now, that has been revealed in Christ and has been told to us through these apostles. Help us proclaim this mystery of faith, Father, in spirit and in truth. We ask all of this in Jesus' kingly and powerful and risen and reigning name. Amen.